Hi, everyone. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Welcome to Yoga Birth Babies, a podcast produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. We will be diving into everything prenatal yoga, birth, and baby-related, hoping to inspire, educate, and empower you through your journey into motherhood. Thank you for listening. Hi, guys. So welcome to, I believe this is our maybe seventh or eighth. I don't know where it's going to line up in the podcast release. Um, our podcast of Yoga Birth Babies. I'm Deb Flaschenberg, and I am ecstatic to have Tanya Wills here. Total side note, 100 years ago, she and I went to school together. So, yay, Boston Conservatory, you put out birth workers, <laughs> not just actors. All right, so let me tell you a little bit about Tanya. She is a LM, a uh, lot of initials here. Hold on, LM, CNM, WHMP-BC-IBCLC. So I'll have her explain all of those to you soon. She's the owner of Manhattan Birth providing heartfelt down-to-earth, no purple crystal childbirth preparation for the pregnant folks here in New York City. And she's a graduate of the midwifery program of Yale School of Nursing and is a nationally certified nurse midwife licensed in New York and New Jersey. And Tanya practices midwifery with Marcy Tardio, Tardio, I think that's how you say it, home birth in New York City and is an international board certified lactation consultant in private practice. All right, Tanya, tell me some of those initials because I can't believe I didn't mess them up. I did a great job. Um, <laughs> so um, LM is licensed midwife. I figured that one. Yeah, so that, that is, that's actually um, the initials that we use here in the state of New York because, as you probably know, there are many different types of midwifery certifications, mm-hmm. which we can talk about later if you want. Um, but LM means that I'm a licensed midwife here in New York. Um, CNM is certified nurse midwife. WHNP is Women's Healthcare Nurse Practitioner, BC Board Certified. IBCLC is <laughs> Board Certified Lactation Consultant. I think that that might be all that is listed there. Yeah, so, <laughs> like I recommend some of these. Yes, and each each one of those layers costs several thousand dollars. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you're well in debt. Yes. <laughs> all right. Since I had mentioned. Um, Tanya and I go back, and we just figured that she was graduated one year ahead of me at the conservatory um, as an oboe player, but then turned actress. So, and I also was a musical theater performer at the Boston Conservatory. So if you don't mind, before we get into the whole birth thing, I'm just really interested to hear what was the catalyst that took you from a performer to a birth worker? So, you know, for me, it was having my first baby. That's how I learned about all of this. And, you know, this is sort of a story that I tell um, my childbirth students when um, when I first meet them in our first class, which is, you know, when I first got pregnant, I knew nothing about having babies. And none of my friends had babies. And the only people that I knew who had babies were basically my mother and my sister. And so they were my only resource. Um, and I think for me, a lot of what took a lot of the fear you know, we live in this very fear-based culture around birth, and I think like many, many people, my only source about childbirth was the media. Oh, that's dangerous. Yeah, I mean, you know, people really believe this stuff to be true, and and, and I did too, and so I, I was really nervous about it, and um, I figured, all right, let me, let me try and figure out what this is, is really like, and I started doing some research um, when I was pregnant, and actually uh, I was in a 
theater class with someone who had just had a baby, and she gave me the choices in childbirth, you know, that little skinny pamphlet yes. they put out, yeah. Guide to a Healthy Birth. Mm-hmm. And she circled, like, where she took her prenatal yoga classes and where she bought her nursing bras and, like, a whole bunch of things like that. And I brought the pamphlet home, and I read the thing cover to cover, and it was a little pamphlet by Choices in Childbirth, and a lot of great things to say in it. So it really sparked um, an interest to in me to um, see if I could get good care rather than just with the doctor that I fell into. Did you and change care providers once you started to, or were you lucky that you had a well-aligned care provider? I changed care providers three times in my first pregnancy. Interesting. Who did you end up with? I ended up with Marcy Tardio, <laughs> having my baby at home, and I, I met her. I think I met her around 33 weeks or 34 weeks. Wow, that was a pretty far off. Yeah, and, and interestingly, because now we work together, um, she actually gave me my, my charts from my pregnancies, which was really a fantastic thing for me to read as a midwife now. Um, and um, my first prenatal baby with her was when I was 35 weeks pregnant. So I, I started to feel like everywhere I went, this is sort of part of my story, is that, you know, when I started to learn about childbirth and I started asking my doctor about whether or not she was aligned with what I wanted, she, you know, it's like I said, you know, I, I think I think we uh, want to have a natural childbirth. And, you know, part of the story is that I sort of, a couple things happened. I sort of heard all these childbirth stories from people that, that had a lot of intervention because I just thought, like, okay, you know, I... I always tell people I've never run a marathon and my favorite food's Doritos, so like I'm clearly not one of those exceptional people that natural childbirth is for. You know, natural childbirth is for people who are very fit or very religious, or like, you know, I had all of these ideas in my totally clueless mind about how it wasn't for me. And um, you know, my, my sister had a baby and she's like, listen, it is the worst day of your life. It is so hard and so awful and so terrible. So this was sort of I just thought, like, okay, you know, I, I'm just a regular old person, so I'm not going to be this this small percentage of people that is able to have natural. Um, but I kept hearing these birth stories that just sounded terrible. Like, they were so scary, and they were like, oh, the baby was gross, and I was exhausted, and, like, <laughs> all this sort of stuff. And so I kind of secretly wanted to start reading those stories online about natural childbirth, just totally curious, like, who are these people? And um, I don't know who they are. But they weren't who I thought they were, <laughs> not that I knew them. But um, their stories were just totally different than anything that I had heard. And they definitely talked about pain, and they definitely talked about how hard it was. But the end of their story was not scary. Mm-hmm. It was triumphant. Mm-hmm. And it was how much they loved what they had done that day and the way they had begun their journey to motherhood on that day that they had their baby. I got a little interested in it, and my partner kind of noticed that I was reading about this, and he immediately said, oh, my mom did that. You can totally do it. I totally believe in you. I think that makes such a difference when the partner believes and is on board. I just did a childbirth ed class with a couple, a private one, and the mom really has her heart set, but the dad just doesn't seem to support it, so I kept trying to give him information to bring him in. And I could tell she was getting frustrated, and I kept trying to say, like, it helps if you have your full posse supporting you. And I love that your partner is like, of course you can do it. And I felt the same way. I felt really fortunate that my husband was 100% on board. Because I do think it's it's a battle if you're trying to convince your partner to believe in you. And how do you battle with your partner or your doctor or whoever's in your birth team? 
when you're already battling your own mind and your and body. body that day. I mean, doing this big thing, it's a big, big day. So, yeah, and I think that when you said that, that was the first time that my mind really shifted, shifted and said, well, then why aren't we considering it? Because it sounds great, you know? So, um, so I talked with my doctor about it, and she was like, yeah, you can do that if you want to. Most people don't. <laughs> you know? She's, and, you know, she's very nice, but, um, I mean, looking back on it now, of course, where, how far I've come, I mean, it's so clear that she was like, yeah, whatever. Like, but that's, that. that's actually really, I'm actually impressed with that comment because I would have thought certain doctors that I talked to, they'd be like, oh, that's just crazy. Like, my doctor was so supportive. He's like, I know this is what you do. Of course I'm expecting you to do that. I'll be your backup should you need. But I know a lot of care providers that just think it's the most whacked out idea. So I'm, I'm actually impressed that she didn't try to talk you out of it. She didn't try and talk me out of it. She did tell me to stay at home until the very end and then come in and have the baby. She's like, you know, just hire a doula, stay at home as long as possible. And I was like, okay, so when, when do I come to the hospital? And she was like, just at the very end. Just come here and have the baby. And I was like, okay, so when is that? She's like, it's like right at the end. And what did she say when you told her you wanted to Oh, That's no, she, we didn't have that conversation. Oh, okay, <laughs> no, I'm sorry. I'm that was my first good. doctor. This was just oh, to okay. see if she would... I hate to use this word because you know she would let me have my baby, right? You know, which is, you know, I mean, you and I both, I'm sure, hear this kind of language coming from people. Are we allowed to? Do they allow? Will they let me? And you know, what they maybe call the cops or something. Because I just had a conversation <laughs> with a student where she got her care provider to keep pushing her induction date, and I said she's concerned because she's pregnant with her third. She's like, I don't know, do I go back? They did let me go past this. And I'm like, they let you. And then she said something to the extent of, you know, I don't want to be pushed that way again because her last two kids were both 10 days late. So that's showing something about her pattern of gestation. And I said to her, you know, you just don't have to show up. They're not going to come to your house and take you to the induction. And she's like, that's true. My experience is that they probably won't even notice <laughs> that she didn't come, depending on how big the practice is, you know? So so anyway, so I, I, I just felt like I was having these really rushed conversations with my doctor, and then, um, you know, the business of being born came out, you know, when I was pregnant uh, in theaters. So I went to go see it, and I was like, totally, my heart crying. I mean, weeping and being like, Oh my god! You know, and um, so then I I switched to a midwife uh, at the birthing center at at what is now the Sinai West. They've got so many different names. I'm so old school. I like They have wiped the name Roosevelt off that joint. Um, but in any case, um, I still you know I was 28 weeks when I met my midwife there, and um, the, at first I had a doctor there, and then I met the midwife there. And, you know, the midwife right away was like, listen, you know, why do you want to be in the birthing center? I was like, I just want to see, like, could you check on me and check on the baby? And if everything is okay, can you just say some nice things to me and see if the baby comes out? Like, I just was wondering if that could be the birth plan. And she just was like, Tanya, you need to totally change your attitude here. We just had somebody the other day who was, you know, she stalled at six centimeters for three hours. And when she had her C-section, she was very happy because I was with her. And you just, you need to change the way that you're thinking. And I was like, should I just go back to the doctor at the other hospital who told me not to come here? Like, <laughs> you know. So uh, my doula at the time, I was telling her about what I wanted. And she said, Tanya, you know, I don't think you're going to get that kind of care basically anywhere. I think what you 
we want is a model of care that can give them birth. And I said, you know, that's for crazy people. And I was kind of like, I was kind of like praying, like, God, please let me just be like normal people. Do I have to explain to people that I need to have a home birth? Can I just have a regular old birth? Only totally natural with them letting me push out my baby in any position that I want. And, you know, letting me have, you know, agency over my body and not battling any other human people so I can just do my labor. Um, But she, she, we had a long talk. And, um... She said, why don't you interview him with midwives? And my husband at first was not on board. Um, and I remember him saying about the doula, he said, I don't like her. And I said, why don't you like her? And he said, because she's not answering my questions. And I said, Josh, she is answering your questions. She's just not giving you the answers that you want to hear. <laughs> and he heard me. We have a good relationship. And he was like, oh, you're totally right. <laughs> she's not. Okay, let's interview him with midwives. And, um, I think he really did think about like, the position he was also going to be in with me in an environment where I did not trust the institution. Um, I didn't trust the institution. And it's not to say that institutions can't be trusted. That was just my experience, you know. Um, and I think that's something I talk with my students about, you know, is that it has to come from us where we feel the safest. And it was clear that this is where I felt the safest. So we started interviewing home birth midwives, and to make a long story short, I met my midwife when I was about 34 weeks pregnant. It would be happened to be Marcy. Um, and I had Milo, my son, um, in our old apartment upstairs. I was 42 weeks and three days pregnant. I had a 42-hour labor, you know, but it wasn't hard the whole time. We had a big chunk of time that was, you know, me overpaying attention. And um, <laughs> he was nine pounds. And um, I got up and walked away. I had no stitches, nothing. I just... And, 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 you know, I think um, I always tell people that, like, I, I think that, like, I thought that I knew who I was and what I knew before then, and just through that experience, the hardest thing I did in my life, nothing compared, and I think I had to, like, say goodbye to everything that I believed that I was, and, um, and truly accept what had really happened to me that day, and I didn't have a home birth because I wanted to be, like, spiritually transformed, or that I wanted a transformative, orgasmic experience, like nothing like that, um, but I was completely changed that day. Um, everything that I believed to be true was changed, and I was very moved by the level of care that I received from my midwife and my doula, and um, I couldn't, st- I still was sort of like, how did that happen to me that day? What is going on with women in this country? And I was just really hungry for it. I never stopped reading the birth books, and um, I became a doula. I, I did my doula training three months later with my baby on the breast and started attending birth when he was six months old. And I basically have never stopped. My four children have never known any other life than not knowing when mommy's going to leave or when she's going to come home. I'm impressed by that because I stopped my doula work after my daughter was born because I found it too great. But I also have the, the yoga studio that I'm, you know, running. But I found that that was just too hard for me. And again, I think it's each person's balance. But having the studio and then having home life and kids and then running off to do a birth and then having to jump right back into uh, mom life, I, it was a little too challenging for me. It so is I'm really so challenging. Impressed. It really is. And I think, you know, for me, unfortunately, I remember when I decided I was going to apply to midwifery school, I remember being in tears with my husband and saying, I'm so sorry, but I have to do this. And he was like, baby, I know. I know that you do. Like, he got it. He totally got it. And he's like, 
go do whatever you need to do. I'm going to help you, you know? And, um, for me, I think particularly since moving toward midwifery, cause I always, as a doula, I mean, part of this transformation was, you know, as a doula, I, I think I always thought that I wanted to be a midwife, but you know, the coming, just a step in that direction. it's like, how do I know that I want to stay up all night with people? Right. You know, when I have two degrees with FA after them, you know, you know what I mean? Like I haven't taken science since <laughs> I was 16, you know, I have no background in health at all. And, um, you know, I thought, okay, who do I think I am here? Let, let me go learn about this and see if this is really what I want to do. And the more doula work I did, um, the more I felt my hands were tied mm-hmm. and I wanted to help women in a very hands-on way. Um, I also started teaching childbirth classes as well, which I also felt really gave me um, very much of an activist role in the birth community. I could speak directly to women and I was not their doula. Mm-hmm. And so I could just tell them whatever I thought and they didn't have to worry about whether I was going to judge their choices in childbirth because I not there with them, you right. know? Um, so I loved that part of the freedom of it. Um, but then when I ultimately started studying midwifery, for me, this work is a calling. And, um, I don't think I ever knew what a calling was until I received one. And I truly, like I said, I, I never got into this work for spiritual reasons, but I don't know how you can do this work and not know that there's a higher hand involved. Mm-hmm. And I, feel that I've been chosen to do this work and that I, I cannot stop. So, um, I feel really, really lucky, um, that I get to wake up every day and do this. And, um, it's super great. And, you know, I was up, I got home at six in the morning today from oh, a so baby. I'm so are awake to do that. I am. I am. And, um, I remember the dad last night was, you know, the duel and I were cleaning up and he said, I can't believe this is the life you guys live. And I said, aren't we lucky? And he laughed. <laughs> um, but I do love it. And, um, I will say, uh, I'll quote my dad on this. He says, Tanya, I think the work that you do is amazing, but I have to tell you the hours suck. <laughs> There's truth and to that. He's right. So, you know, I think the good news is that we can have an impact. Not everybody needs to stay up all night, you know, mm-hmm. and if you ever decide that you want to, again, don't worry, the dual world will take you back with open <laughs> arms. <laughs> all right. So I want to back up a little bit. So for our listeners that are out there that are just for the, maybe even the first time hearing the idea of home, well, no, if they've been listening to the podcast, they know, because my last podcast I did was why I chose a home birth, oh, yeah. um, which yeah. had a lot to do with my idea of where I felt the most safe. So I'm glad we resonated on that. But for those that maybe are tuning in for the first time, can you explain a little bit about not even just home birth, but as well as home birth, the different schools of thought. So there's your typical, or I shouldn't say typical, traditional obstetrics approach, and then there's midwifery model of care. And then even within the midwifery, I feel like the home birth's uh, even more um, more of a niche in a sense. Because I remember when I was choosing my birth path, it was pretty clear for me. I, for well woman care, I always saw an OB who I have a great relationship with, and then for a split second, I considered a hospital midwife, but I knew that I'd still be dealing with the hospital. So then I was just like, of course, I'm just going to do home birth because I really don't want to birth in a hospital unless it's medically necessary. So can you explain the different ways of care, the different way of care is given for both of those? I will do my best. Um, You pretty much just said it. I (laughs) mean, you did, you did. But um, you know, the obstetrical model of care, for those who don't know, um, you know, obstetrics, uh, physicians 
train for a very, very long time in lots and lots of complicated things. Um, in like OBGYNs, you know, they study gynecological surgeries and, you know, gynecological oncology and, um, you know, endometriosis and fibroids and, you know, um, multiple births and, you know, lots of more complicated things. Um, midwifery views and it's surgical as opposed to midwifery. Well, that's where they, they spend the most of their time in their training learning about all those complicated things that we need them to do. Because right. as you and I both know, when birth goes well, she just does it your, herself. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I feel like when a birth goes well, my main job is sanitation. You know, it's really like it's, you know, I don't deliver babies. Women birth their babies. Mm-hmm. And I'm there to make sure that they have what they need and that they are safe and that they're well supported. So, you know, if I'm going to intervene on somebody, there better be a damn good reason. This lady's having a baby, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Um, so I think that when we are at home, the authority that we answer to has to do with what we know to be medically safe and what is necessary for the woman and for the family. We can take a more holistic approach. And when I say holistic, I don't mean that we use herbs. I mean like, <laughs> which, which by the way we do, but <laughs> um, I mean, we get to look at this in a larger way and how it impacts this family and this, these people's lives going forward and where they have come from and this baby's life going forward. Whereas I feel like birth in the hospital has another consideration that is placed on it. And that is keeping the hospital alive and thriving. And, you know, as you know, as a business owner, and I know as a business owner, even with our little businesses, it's a big job. Can you even imagine what is at play to keep those hospitals running? And the maternity services are, you know, the the busiest places in the joint. Mm-hmm. And it is the one place where people who are most likely the healthiest they've ever been in their lives walk in for high, high tech stuff for something that if you're low risk is really just a normal thing that's going to happen in your life. So midwifery, the midwifery model of care and also family physicians as well view childbirth for most people as something that most people will do and most people will do as just sort of a a part of the life cycle. And from our viewpoint, as long as you are low risk and you are healthy, um, you don't have any major health problems, then that's what you'll be. Everything will unfold pretty normally. And the care that we provide is to make sure that it is, we look for reassurance of normal, reassurance of normal. We know normal really well. We know when things are normal and we know when they're not so normal, right? And if things are getting abnormal, and there's a lot of things that become abnormal that we can manage perfectly fine at home, that's no trouble at all. Um, But there are some things that become a little bit too risky, and you really do need to be closer to where there is higher tech um, care uh, available, namely in a hospital. So um, if that happens with one of our clients in the prenatal period, off you go uh, to a place that can provide that. And if it happens at some point in the labor, you know, we are very involved in the labor process. We are there uh, caring for you. We don't just put you on a machine and leave and have a bunch of people who are learning take care of you. We, we do it ourselves and we do it in your home and we, we keep close watch. And if anything becomes abnormal and we don't think that home is a wise place to be, then we, we go to the hospital. Our family has grown. Welcome to the world, Hannah baby. Introducing a new collection, Hannah Soft, made with Tencel. It's so breathable. 
with stretchy comfort for all of baby's first moments. And it's cool and gentle on their skin all year round. Entrusted Hannah quality for your most precious gift. Hannah soft, made to last. Shop now at hannahanderson.com. That's something I think people often have this misconception about that, you know, a home birth midwife shows up and all she does is have like a little bag and, you know, maybe some gauze or something. Like I honestly don't know what's <laughs> in people's minds, but I know having to explain to my own family and friends that I felt confident that should something go wrong, there were many things I knew that, you know, that came with an oxygen tank of baby need resuscitation. I knew, I remember from attending as a doula, being surprised by how much equipment the home birth midwife set out and then just covered and left. And most of the time it was just left there, but knowing that they were ready. And then I also knew, should there be a bigger problem, they were ready to transfer. So talk, if you wouldn't mind, I'd love to hear kind of all the stuff that you bring so that people understand you're not just walking and be like, Hey, I'm here. Hope it's all going well. (laughs) As well as when you start to see things maybe getting a little shifty and when you, and then how, and when you might make the decision and what some of those, it's a big question in many, many parts, when, what some of those things might be that would instigate transferring. So great. Well, let's talk a little bit about transfer first. Okay. Since it's, that's, I think an easy thing to, to answer. So, um, so like I said before, um, some people will transfer their care before they ever go into labor right? Their, their pregnancy itself will develop complications. And some of the complications that can develop in pregnancy, um, you know, maybe high blood pressure or preeclampsia or, pre-eclampsia, or um, if somebody has gestational diabetes that is well controlled with diet, that's okay. They can have their home birth. Um, but if they're gestational diabetes is not well controlled and they can't manage and and it, if they need to go on medication, that's going to be too risky for a home birth because that can affect that can affect the the labor and the birth and the care that the baby may need um that we're just we're just going to need more hands on deck the risk the the ben- the risk outweighs the benefit and so mm-hmm. it's better to be in the hospital um certainly if you went into labor before 37 weeks that would be a premature baby we don't do preemies at home mm-hmm. um in our practice we don't do multiples at home we don't do breach at home um so there there are certain things that you know you just if you had any health problems if you had seizures or anything like that in your history you're you're not a good candidate for home birth so i think it's important that we mention that um, not everybody is a candidate for home birth. Both partners have to want to have a home birth. In our practice, if the partner is not supportive of home birth, we see that as a contraindication. It is not safe. So we don't we don't help couples if there's half the couple that's not on board. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are some of the things that would would make it a contraindication. Um, but we can talk a little bit about about labor. Um, and one of the things that we do first and foremost is we have a very clear transfer plan uh, about where we would go if we needed to go quickly and where we would go if we did not need to go quickly, mm-hmm. right? So if we needed to go quickly, you know, quickly would be for like, say, non-reassuring fetal heart tones. They used to call that fetal distress, but usually we don't wait for fetal distress. If we have heart tones that are not reassuring, you, you know, we're going to be seeing if we can resolve these heart tones Maybe it's a positional thing or, you know, sometimes babies sort of lean on their own cords and then they, you know, the the labor progresses pretty quickly and then they're off their cords and everything is fine and it just goes away. Um, So those kinds of things happen. But if, 
it is persistent. You know, babies, one of the things that I tell people in my classes about babies' heartbeats is that babies, you know, their heartbeats go up and down, just like ours do. And there's a, a range of normal that it's in. And sometimes the baby can kind of go a little bit out of that range of normal. And, you know, your midwife or your doctor, whoever's with you, can can see um, if it's widely out of the range. And if it's a little bit, we watch. But everybody knows that babies have reserves. They don't have like one deceleration of the heartbeat and, you know, oh my God, let's go to a C-section. You know, Mm -hmm. there's some time that we have there. So we watch very closely to see if it resolves. And if it doesn't, we will go someplace closer um, for more more monitoring or intervention if necessary. It would be a case where we need to be closer to intervention. But, you know, for for home birth, you know, the most common reason for transfer is actually when nothing is happening. It's actually quite boring. Um, <laughs> it's what we call failure to progress, which we know for primary C-sections for all in, in our country is the most common reason for a first-time C-section to happen. So um, so that is the most common reason for transfer. Different home birth practices have different um, rates of transfer. I think ours is about 5% or something like that. And basically what happens is everybody becomes exhausted. You know, the, the mother becomes exhausted. We try every trick in our bag that we have, including the tincture of time, which is something that we have the luxury that we hold very dear in home birth. We really do see that most things, if we just give them time, do resolve. It's That's one thing that, that I learned from the midwife, Lonnie Morris, who trained me in the hospital, actually. She said, just let the lady have her baby, give her time. Um, always, almost always works. But sometimes labors are, are truly dysfunctional. They really do need some intervention to help them progress. Um, so in those cases, we have choices about where we want to go to receive care. And we have a few hospitals that we have relationships with the midwives that, um, that run the labor and delivery floors on those hospital, uh, on those hospital maternity units. Um, so of course we, we always call ahead. We go in a car, you know, we drive there. Um, we shake hands, we give report and we stay with our people. And usually, um, as long as the baby is doing okay, we've, we've had time to, to get there. Um, sometimes some medical intervention, maybe an epidural or maybe some Pitocin or something like that can uh, help them to make progress and have a vaginal birth. We try to choose hospitals as well, where we know that the family is going to be able to stay together in the postpartum unit after the baby is born. I think people sometimes think very hard about their birth and wanting their birth to be like natural with no intervention. But we know that if we're going to the hospital for intervention, there are ways we can still preserve that um, that outcome of the family being together that we hold so dear to us in home birth, Mm -hmm. um, that we don't separate mothers and and partners and babies overnight. And there are only a few hospitals in New York City and nearby, we have a hospital in New Jersey we go to as well, where the family stays together in the postpartum as long as everyone is healthy. We try to choose those kinds of places. One question, it's something that you said kind of struck my ear. So you and I actually both had our first births were minus 42 hours as well. I know, I read your birth story. <laughs> I was like, all right, Deb, make it count. So I actually never thought that my midwife, Stacy was going to think to bring me in for a time. I actually remember marching into my living room at one point around maybe hour, might have been like 30, 35, something like that, declaring, I don't know who I'm trying to prove this to, um, should we just go to the hospital? At which point she said, and what would happen there? And I'm like, they're just going to take the baby out. And she's like, is that what you think? And I'm like, no. And then I 
turned around grumpy and went back into my room and then things start to pick up. Yeah. But I never thought about the, the time constraint. I actually always said had it been in the hospital, I'm sure they would have said failure to progress. So what is it that you look for that you're saying failure to progress as opposed to does she need more hydration? Do we need to talk about fear, baby position? For me, I knew it was clearly baby position that we were working very aggressively his head was slightly asynclitic. So we knew. And what Stacy said, it was um, slow and methodical. Mm-hmm. So there was progress. But do you have a certain criteria that you're, look like, that you're looking at and you're saying, you know, I really think, is it more the mom's exhausted and so tight that she needs an epidural to soften the pelvic floor? Like, do you have anything that's shining out at you that you're like, okay, it's time to maybe suggest transfer for failure to progress? Well, I think actually what you said, you mentioned all those things, right? That you were, does she need hydration? Is it the baby's position? What is it? So we just go through every trick that we have in our bag, right? Mm -hmm. Let's consider what is causing this and can, do we have a remedy for it, right? Mm -hmm. If she's dehydrated, we can give her an IV or sometimes if she's exhausted, we can give her an IV. Mm -hmm. Uh, We do carry, I should say this, we carry IVs. We know how to administer IVs. Um, we carry antibiotics in oh, case yeah, she has groupies. What are all the things that you bring? Yeah, to? yeah. So, um, so what do we bring? I have my bag here. Actually, we <laughs> could go through it. Um, so, we. I'm sorry. Uh, life at home birth. I just want to make, make sure this no shush. Okay. <laughs> um, I'll look at it if it lights up. Um, my, my, that's, this is the life of a home birth midwife. My phone is on high by my head 24 hours a day and seven days a week. If you have any friends for the public, if you have any friends that it, are home birth midwives, don't text them thinking that their phone is in their purse <laughs> at one o'clock in the morning, that they'll just look at it in the morning. They don't. They wake up in a panic <laughs> thinking that you're somebody in labor. So... What do we bring? And then so, what's the criteria? What do you have as your criteria for transfer? For transferring, yeah, yeah. Um, so we bring um, a blood pressure cuff. We bring a stethoscope so we can check your blood pressure. We bring a thermometer so we can check your temperature. If your water is broken, we want to make sure that you're not at risk for infection. And so we check your temperature. Um, we check the baby's heartbeat with a Doppler, which is basically a handheld version of the continuous fetal monitor that they use in the hospital. We don't have a printout of what we hear. We use what's called intermittent auscultation, meaning auscultation is listening. Intermittent is from time to time. We have a specific protocol that we use for how often we listen. We can listen more or listen less. If you do the research on whether or not intermittent auscultation is a good idea, you will know it is a very good idea that continuous electronic fetal monitoring, generally speaking, on low-risk women uh, does not improve outcomes and raises a C-section rate. So that's not so good. So Mm -hmm. we don't use that. but we, we use the Doppler. Um, we bring with us um, anti-hemorrhage medications. So, of course, we don't induce labor with Pitocin or any of those medications that they would use in the hospital. We would like you to go into labor naturally. But there are some natural ways we can induce labor if we need to get things going for any reason. Um, rather than taking you to the hospital for an induction, why not try and get things going at home? So we have herbs. We have homeopathy. Um, we, you know, we might use castor oil or an enema or acupuncture mm-hmm. or some sort of um, complementary modalities. I don't call them alternative modalities. I call them complementary modalities because we also carry Pitocin, mm-hmm. right? So we carry Pitocin and Methogen and um, other anti-bleeding medications in case somebody bleeds a little bit more than we like. And if somebody does bleed more than we like, 
we use it. <laughs> we don't just burn sage. <laughs> um, so, uh, but that being said, if somebody needs us to burn sage, we absolutely will do it. <laughs> um, we will do everything. Uh, I also carry aromatherapy in my bag. Um, also, we have, um, you know, we carry catheters in case somebody has a bladder that they can't empty. We, I said, we carry antibiotics in case somebody has uh, group B strep and needs uh, antibiotics in their labor so we can administer that as well. Um, what else do we carry? Oxygen. Oxygen, that's right. Um, if we carry oxygen in case the mother or the baby needs oxygen to help them, uh, sometimes babies can benefit from some, from some oxygen to help them transition into the breathing world, which is not a place they come from. They have to arrive here and transition. It takes many minutes actually hours for them to fully transition. We are highly trained in neonatal resuscitation practices, mainly because if the baby needs to be resuscitated, we don't just hand it off. We do it ourselves. We bring suctioning equipment. Um, it's not electric suctioning equipment like they have in the hospital. It's one that it's called a Dali and it's something, it's kind of like the nose Frida, mm -hmm. only it's for suctioning airways. So, so we bring that. Um, so we, we bring suctioning equipment. We bring an Amni hook. Uh, we bring medication in case you tear if you need stitches. So we bring numbing medication, just the same exact stuff that they use in the hospital. Um, and we bring sutures. If you need stitches, we can do those as well. Um, we bring sterile gloves and equipment to uh, use aseptic technique when we need it. I'm sure there's more. There's a ton of stuff, a scale, a scale to weigh the baby, and tape measure know, to measure the baby. You and know? I also know the mom is you know, required to get, at least I was, I was required to get my own certain things as well. We do. We ask the mom like to a get a birth kit. kit. Yeah. Exactly. It's like a box of consumables. So in it has like, you know, um, what we call chucks pads, which mm -hmm. kind of are like wee-wee pads. pads. Yeah. yeah. So chucks pads, you know, gloves, um, gauze, mm -hmm. things that we're going to use and throw away. There's like a, like a peri bottle for mm -hmm. you to kind of rinse your perineal area after the birth, you know, to help with healing, um, you know, betadine, um, some other things, a thermometer for the baby and some other like cleansers and things like that. So now jumping to, you're watching a birth, it's taking a long time. What are your signs like, wow, I think maybe, and it's not emergent. It's not like mom spiking a fever, baby's uh, heart tones are concerning. It's just taking a long time. Right. You've tried hydration. You've tried to discuss are there any fears we need to open up to maybe release baby positions. So you've tried a lot of protocols. What would be a final factor of like, maybe she's so, I've seen this in a few births, so incredibly tense yes. and so exhausted that an epidural might actually be helpful. And I find the women that are like at their 30th hour that are like, I so want to go natural. It's the hardest for them to accept, but oftentimes it helps them relax, especially the pelvic floor muscles, especially if they were strong, maybe athletes before. Yeah, so for sure. So if you have anything that kind of rings out to you, it's like, all right, I know this was your intention, but I feel we may want to head inward to the hospital. I do. I think that there's sort of like, there's two things here. So one is, you know, there could be a woman where her mind is giving her a problem because just like what happened with you in your birth, very slow and steady progress, but it is happening. Mm -hmm. The progress is happening and you're sick of it. I mean, I was sick of my labor. I remember, I, you know, I had a long labor too. And I remember, 
you know, my midwife coming over and checking me and saying, okay, you know, you're tiny, you're just working entirely too hard. You need to just, you know, and I thought like, listen, I, I read the Ina May book and I took a Bradley (laughs) class. I know I'm supposed to relax, but this is really hard. You don't get it. But of course I couldn't say any of those things because I was in labor, right? I mean, the the amount of things that you said to your midwife, wow, what a paragraph you put together. And then you, you just well, gave up on talking. Look, <laughs> what I think in my head in labor is amazing. What comes out is I'm getting in the tub. Like that's what yeah, comes I out. Swear, I literally came out. Who am I trying to prove? <laughs> because I personally, I felt, um, I did feel a little pressure. You know, oh, here yeah, I am at that position. point. I had the studio already for nine years and I'd been teaching all these, you know, about 9,000 women at that point, I did feel a little pressure of like, what's going to happen? So that's where I think I had to resolve. Like, who am I trying to prove this to? Is this for me? Is this for them? What's this all about? And then I finally just grumpily turned around and like, fine, we're just going to keep going. (laughs) Exactly. And I had the same thing too. I mean, I was not in the birth community when I had my first baby, but I had sort of the same thing, which in specifically in my transition where I thought, I don't see any way this can get any harder and I can come out of this. Okay. Like I really just sort of, and I, it was, there was a, a whole set of rules in my labor, which was, you're not allowed to touch me. You're not allowed to talk to me. <laughs> like, I pretty quickly learned all the rules, you know, and they, they paid attention to them. But there was a point where I opened my mouth and I, and I mean, I felt like I was holding on to a hair, you know, and I, I had no hope. And there were many times already where I thought they're just going to say that I have to go to the hospital that I, that I can't do it, that I'm not strong enough because the way that we visit and meet our strength in labor is not what we thought it was going to be. We thought we were going to be what we thought strong was. And instead our labor teaches us what it really is, the surrender. So I remember saying to, to the room, I mean, my midwife was sleeping. My doula was, I was accepting firm hand holding from her. Everybody else was sleeping. And I said, somebody tell me I can do this. And boy, did they deliver. I mean, they said the most wonderful things that I had silenced them from saying. The, You know, I was just on my own with my own thoughts, which, of course, so many women, they just go, they go down the, the rabbit hole of bad, you know, mm-hmm. when they're alone with their thoughts, really meeting themselves and really testing their limits. And I did, and things did start to, ch- were changing. That's why I felt it so intensely at that point. And, um... I had the baby very quickly, but slow and steady, steady progress. And so I think the first thing is that if she's making slow and steady progress, um, in a case where a baby is asynclitic, and, and I just want to mention in case our listeners don't know what that oh, means, yeah, uh, a, a baby in the best case scenario, and this doesn't mean the health, that they're healthy or not healthy. Babies kind of do whatever they feel like doing in there. You know, I mean, hopefully they're going to be lined up perfectly. So their head is aligned. So it's, as small as it can possibly be, and it will just come right out and be perfectly positioned, and their neck won't be tilted in one way or another. But babies have necks just like we do, and you know, and and you guys might know that their necks aren't as strong as ours are. So sometimes in there, they they just kind of get in a little tilted to the side a little bit, and when that happens, it makes the circumference of the head present bigger than it would have if it was in the smallest presentation, which is sort of with their, the baby's head tucked and the crown of the head really presenting. So imagine the crown of the head only off to the side, and then you have Deb's baby. That baby needs well, to I often liken it to, <laughs> I often liken it to like putting a turtleneck sweater on. You wouldn't like put your face up or turn your head, and you want, you know, you 
you kind of tuck your chin and put it on. And that's exactly. kind of what I think of the cervix like. Right. It's like a turtleneck sweater. Exactly. Exactly. So when it's tilted a little aside, it, you know, that turtleneck sweater has to, has to do a little bit more work. And that's what happened with your baby. But as long as you know, the baby's head smush and they rotate and they oh, find their little work. ways. We work to get that baby. And that's what I feel sometimes. Women in hospitals don't always have the luxury of time or even space if they're hooked up to the monitors That's the right. whole time. So I do feel a birth center, if they're open to it, or a home birth gives you that luxury of the ability to move and time. But I'm assuming at some point you might be like, if things have really stalled out. Well, exactly right. When there's no progress and we've tried everything that we know to help her make progress. So obviously like the very act of moving your body changes the shape of your body and the Mm -hmm. shape of your pelvis, the amount of room in your pelvis, just moving away from your pain Mm -hmm. is... Actively birthing your baby, even if you, you know, you don't need a midwife to tell you, oh, try this position or go to your childbirth book and look up all the positions that you said. You just move and Mm -hmm. that helps the baby make its way just as yours did. But sometimes, you know, we can intervene. If we suspect something's going on with the position of the baby, we can say, you know what? I think the baby is this way. And I think if we try this position, Mm -hmm. it might remedy it. Or if we try the rebozo Mm -hmm. or if we try... Um, certain homeopathy or certain herbs, the herbs can also help you to keep going. So it has to do with if the progress is happening, even if it's slowly or even if it's stalled, if we still have more things we can try, and if the mother is is willing and the environment and the home is still willing to go, and you know, women have, we have doubt, you know, we say, I, I don't think I can do this, right? This is much harder than I thought it was going to be, and I believed myself to be strong and all of these sorts of things. But I feel like as midwives, and doulas are good at this too, but certainly as midwives, we can see the difference between pain and suffering Absolutely. for this woman. You know, we can see, and I think that I have also been to births where the level of pain for the woman and the lack of progress don't match. Like mm-hmm. the pain is so intense and she is not progressing, you know. Um, it's so, so, so intense and she just reaches her limit and she says, you guys, it has taken me, you know, 14 hours to go one centimeter and, and we can see how much pain she is enduring. And she could be suffering. And she, she could be suffering and... And we can see where it's that or just, I doubt I can do this. Is it ever going to happen? Right. You know? So in that case, the mom will usually say, you guys listen to me. I'm finished. I'm done. And we'll have a heart to heart. And we usually can tell. I think she is done and we've done everything, you know? So in those cases, um, there comes a time where everyone can see that it's time to go. Um, that particular woman that I'm, I'm thinking of a specific case, um, she did go to the hospital and get an epidural and sleep and push out her baby. And she, it worked. It did exactly what we hoped it would do. She was in so much pain and it, it an abnormal amount of pain. It relaxed her pelvic floor. Her baby rotated and, and came out and it was great. Yeah, that's why I try never to demonize uh, the use of epidurals because you don't know if or when you're going to need it. And if we do that as soon as someone walks in the door, we're not even going to open them to the idea of like, oh, there are possibilities. And if we put it on this pedestal kind of like that, not pedestal, but like put it back in the corner saying, oh, don't do it. And if someone really needs it or just really wants it, they might feel shame about it. And that's the last thing we want someone to ever feel coming out of their birth is a sense of shame or, or oh, for failure. An, for an epidural, please. Yeah, for an epidural. <laughs> no, but I, I've had students be like, I really wanted a natural birth and I had an epidural. I'm like, 
And how do you feel about it? They're like, well, actually, I feel great. I'm like, well, go with it. <laughs> yeah. No, for sure. And I think, I mean, like, you know, it's certainly like it, in the, I mean, this particular woman I'm thinking about, I mean, she she was disappointed that she had a hard labor. That's reasonable, mm-hmm. I think. You know, she didn't sign up for that, you know. Um, but well, she knew. Do. Yeah, of course. <laughs> but she knew that that epidural really helped her. It was really great. She was like, this, she needed this to sleep. It. She needed to relax the pelvic floor. Absolutely. And and I, it should be said, you know, I, I work in home birth, so I don't mostly work with people who have, have epidurals. But I think that if women want epidurals, they should be able to get them, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but we do make it clear to people that, you know, well, at a home birth, it's not. That's a little different. We make we make jokes about them yeah. sometimes. We <laughs> recently were with somebody who, right at the very end, she, she she this is her third baby. She's had two other home births. She is in the birth community, so she she's somebody who works in birth. And just as she's pushing the baby out, she said, "I want an epidural." <laughs> and um, Marcy said to me, "Tanya, go prepare the epidural." And then the baby was out. <laughs> I have just a few more questions. So I'm thinking about. I remember a few home births I attended, and one of them was getting a little overwhelming. It was her third, way up in Washington Heights. It was during a snowstorm, and of course, <laughs> of course it was. Of course it was <laughs> on Saturday night, and I arrived before the midwife, and I was getting pretty nervous because things were. I had been with the mom for her first two. She went from Cornell to the birth center, to a home birth. And now she's a Lamaze teacher, um, which she I love. what happens to us. Yeah. I, know, I love that. But it was getting a little frightening for me because I had caught a baby once by accident again, a third. And basically I walked in and she was on the bathroom floor and EMT was on their way. And I had just come back from the, the farm, so I had some sense. But I'm like, this is so not my job. Um, not trained for this. And then it's starting to happen again. So I, I did have some fear around that when... The midwife came in, like, you know, big hallelujah moment. And that's one of my fears as a doula, especially for home births. Because at that time, until the midwife gets there, I am looked at as kind of, I don't want to use the word authority, but like the woman that knows the most. Although, truthfully, the mom knows the most. But should she be birthing, they would rely on me to to intervene. Do you have um, any fears that you ever walk in with? Or what is the biggest fear in the back of your head? Should there be one? As a midwife? Yeah. I mean, I'm not afraid of her having her baby. Well, obviously not. But as a doula, you could understand. Oh, for sure. And and I think I felt that too, you know. Um, One of the first births that I attended, actually the first home birth that I attended as a doula, that was not my own, right? So, uh, you know, I had my own baby at home. And then I think maybe my second or third birth that I attended as a doula uh, was a home birth. And the baby needed a resuscitation. Scared the shit out so of me. So as a midwife, is that <laughs> you know? that you walk in with some fear of, like, as you walk in the door, you're like, let it all go well. You're prepared should things go a little awry. But is it ever in the back of your head, like, let it just can, let everyone be healthy and strong and that is what it is? I don't feel afraid. No, okay. I don't. I think the, the resuscitation that I witnessed as a doula... I spoke with the midwife about it afterwards, and she said, Tanya, the reason that you're afraid is because you don't understand what was happening. You don't understand what the baby was doing. You don't understand what I was doing. You don't understand that it works. Right. So you're coming in with a skill. And so I, I have a skill prepared. that I understand works. So I am prepared. But what I do, what I do, so I'm not afraid, um, but what I do do is if there are if there are things, right, 
that happen in the birth, I think about the next step. Like, okay, if we go down the rabbit hole with what's happening here and this turns into this, this, and this, what is my next step? What go, what happens next if the shit hits the fan here? You know? Mm-hmm. So we, we're always home birth midwives do a whole lot of hands off stuff, but we're always thinking down the road. So for example, if we're at a home birth and the water breaks and there's meconium, mm-hmm. right? Most of the time that's going to be perfectly fine. Um, and I'm not really worried about it. I'm not scared of it, but I am thinking if this baby has a little bit of trouble, what are my steps? Right. You know, um, if, you know, if the woman is pushing and the heartbeat is going down and I, we're going to see how this baby, she's going to have the baby here. Right. So is this baby going to need assistance? I'm thinking in my head, is all of my stuff nearby? Has this been prepared? Of course it has been. You know, we, we keep everything out. We keep Pitocin on the tray. We keep everything there. And most of the time we just put it back in our bags Mm -hmm. and we don't use it. But in our minds, we are always thinking about those things because in home birth, we are it. Mm -hmm. Um, Of course, we can always call for help. We can always call 911. But our job, if we needed to call 911, would be to make sure that we have the skills, that we know our skills necessary to stabilize that woman and baby until help arrives. Um, And like I said, you know, most complications that happen at home can be managed completely at home and we don't have to go to the hospital. But we we always are thinking about those things. But I would say, yeah, that's mainly, mainly it. We think I think a big part of our training in home birth is what to do if if something happens that we don't have a solution to right there. It's very, 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 very rare. In fact, some people in their entire careers will never have a lights and sirens transfer to to a hospital from a home birth because they're so good at at transporting people at an appropriate time mm-hmm. and they're so good at choosing low risk candidates for home birth. So um but nothing nothing scares me as far as important that they're watching to see should we need to go. Again, it's not light and sirens, it's I'm watching things are starting not to look great. I'm going to keep watching. Okay, now we have to make a decision. Well, I think that that's where people, you know, don't don't understand home birth is that, you know, one of the things that Marcy always says is choosing to have a home birth does not guarantee that you're going to have a home birth. Right, absolutely. Right. We're, you know, I'm not having a home birth with people at all costs. No way. I remember even the words I would use instead of I'm I'm going to have a home birth, I'm planning on because I felt if I said that I was somehow jinxing myself. Like I needed to say we're going I'm I'm planning to try a home birth. Yeah, I'm planning so, a home birth. Yeah. And part of planning a home birth planning any birth is that you plan the entire continuum of care for birth. And in this country, that's going to mean all the way out to cesarean birth, right? Mm-hmm. And as well as it as it should. But I always tell even, you know, in my in my childbirth classes as well, I say, I know you don't want to read that chapter. I know you don't want to learn about these interventions because most of the people who take my classes want to go natural, right? So I know you don't want to learn about these interventions. I know you don't want to talk about cesarean birthday. We have to. But one in three women in this country is having a cesarean birth. That's not one in a hundred. That's not one in a thousand. We don't cover cord prolapse in class. Mm -hmm. That's like 0.04%. I mean, it's like so low. We don't need to cover that. Of course we cover cesarean birth with so many people. And my experience is that talking about these things 
and saying, if this becomes necessary, this is the way that this will go for us. And me in my mind thinking about that eventuality and even the client thinking about that eventuality in no way increases their chances that they're going to need it. It only means that if they need it, they have the potential for a more positive birth experience than if they weren't prepared for it. And I will say that no matter how you have your baby, home, birthing center, hospital, intervention, no intervention, it is your birth. Mm-hmm. And it's going to impact how you view birth. It is your birth. Yeah. And you can have a great birth in any setting. Even a cesarean birth can be a very positive experience. You can say, I'm bummed I needed a cesarean, but look at the birth I had. Mm-hmm. You can. Um, I think our hospitals can do better. And some are doing better slowly but surely. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so I think that talking about those possibilities, you know, I've heard people say, like, I don't want to talk about a transfer from home to hospital. That sounds so harrowing. Well, yeah, if you don't talk about it, it will be. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about it. I love hearing that. I have one last question. Do you think the U.S. will ever adapt to its societal acceptance of home birth or even just kind of alternative birth, like even birth centers, I feel like, still get a little bit of bad rap, the way that other countries like the Netherlands and you know, even the U.K. is starting to change their opinion, saying for second-time low-risk moms, they're really advocating home births. They are urging women who are not having their first babies and have had previous vaginal births to birth out of the hospital that the benefits outweigh the risks. Which I love that because, you know, we, we can relate to the UK, you know. So, but a lot of people in the U.S. still see home birth as, you know, this crazy, like, like you said, like the crazy people do it. I mean, I thought it. Yeah. Yeah. How did I know better? I didn't know. You Do know? you think our society could ever shift? Because right now, if I've done my research correctly, what I saw was that the U.S. has the most expensive births, not great outcomes, and yet other countries have less expensive births, more at home with better outcomes. How, how do you think we'll shift that? Do you so, think we could shift that? I, do, I think that it question. will. I think that it will shift. It's a big shift. ending question. Yeah, now. I do. I do. I think that it will shift. Um, I think there's this is many layered. So I'm going to try to not get too far into the weeds okay. about this. So one thing that needs to be said, and in case we don't realize this, is that our healthcare system is not like the UK and the Netherlands. Right. It's just yes. totally different. You know, um, what they say, what the National Health Services says, NHS, which is the healthcare system in the UK, says that every woman should have a midwife. And some women also need doctors. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But the idea that every woman needs a doctor is total overkill. Total overkill. Um, And it's a waste of resources. And I think that America is very, very good at wasting their resources. So I think that (laughs) there's a little bit of that happening here. But we do have sort of a cultural thing happening here um, about this idea that if you you become pregnant, you go to a doctor. You go to a doctor for a pap smear. Mm -hmm. That is overkill. Like you do not need a surgeon to do your pap smear. It is such overkill. You can have a family physician or a midwife do a routine test like a pap smear or a blood test or general routine healthcare maintenance. Um, It's not to say that we don't need obstetricians for lots of things. We need lots of great obstetricians and we have great obstetricians. Um, But the idea that somebody who is low risk is going to increase their chances of having the healthiest possible outcome by going to the person that has the training for the riskiest things, and that is the majority of their training, doesn't make sense. And the chances are you're going to be intervened upon, and we have data that supports that. Mm-hmm. Um, so midwives have lower lower um, intervention rates and very, very healthy outcomes in the hospital, out of the hospital. But what I will say is this. Um, 
I think that we are really, it's coming to a head here. I don't know if you feel it, but I feel like politically it's coming to a head. There are very extreme people um, that are saying that, you know, midwives are crazy and they suck and, you know, all of this. And, and then, you know, there are, there are also midwives who say that doctors suck and it's terrible. And so if we just erase the outliers mm-hmm. and just look in the middle and, and the middle being a huge range of people, right? I really do think that women are very smart, (laughs) very, very smart. And I think that deep inside, we all know that we deserve to have agency over our bodies. We deserve to be respected in our care. And we know that our outcomes for birth eventually will be measured by more than just if I and my baby come out alive, Mm -hmm. that this birth is happening to you and your baby and to your family, and you will go on in your life. So who is going to consider that when giving you care? And when women realize that midwives are the ones who really, you know, we have this shared decision-making model, part of our philosophy has to do with recognizing the birth as part of this woman's life cycle and not just something she, she shows up to, um, for us to deliver for her. Um, when women realize that and they realize, Oh, I can actually have this whole experience taken care of. They want midwifery. I do think that home birth is not going away. We know that its numbers are increasing. And I also think that the number of physicians that want to welcome home birth, that want to back up home birth, that want to recognize home birth and take care of the women that need to transfer out of home birth is also increasing. I think that those conversations are going better and better. There's great work at the um, American College of Nurse Midwives and ACOG, the American Congress of Obstetricians and and Gynecologists. I also think part of the problem in this country is we have many different pathways to becoming a midwife, and I think people are incredibly confused by this. I mean, I found it so confusing. If you just Google midwife and, you know, different midwifery certifications, I think they'll have like five things listed there, and then some woman is going to have, pregnant woman like I was, is going to have to navigate and figure out what all of this means. There's all kinds of infighting about whether you should be a nurse or not be a nurse, or you can go in the apprentice route or this or that. I don't have the answer, but I do think that there needs to be unity among midwives now, yesterday. I really believe that. And, you know, within my own organization, the American College of Nurse Midwives, you know, I, I, I go to the annual meeting and I talk with midwives. And of course, I'm, I'm viewed as a baby midwife, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm a new midwife, so I'm just a baby. And, and, you know, a lot of the answers I get is you don't know where we've been. And what I want to say is, but you can't see where we're going. Mm-hmm. And we have to come together. It is the only way that midwives are going to have the impact that we mean to have is we need to come together. We need to agree about what the education is going to be. And I, I don't know the answer for what it should be, but we need to agree for what it's, it's going to be. Because if we don't, the only people who are getting hurt are women and babies. Right. We can help more people if we agree what it is that we do and where we come from and what our approach is. And then we can have much better conversations with the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. I do think that with the Affordable Health Care Act, with health care costs in this country being completely and totally out of control, you know, not to get political about this. But there is a lot of talk about enough is enough. It's like the price of everything is too high. And people are starting to question this overkill care. ACOG itself has said, oh, we're doing too many cesareans, aren't we? Right? They came out with that statement that's called 
um, safe prevention of the primary cesarean. Two years ago, it came out with it. Mm -hmm. So even they themselves are acknowledging overuse of technology, overuse of, of basically what they're trained in. So I think that with the pendulum shifting in that direction and with midwives working to come together and women being awakened to birth and to these positive stories that our generation is putting out there. You know, here we are, modern women, you know, we're not hippies from the 60s. We are, we're right now, we're mm -hmm. sharing with women what has happened for us. I think that women are, are being awakened, not that they need to do something alternative or that they have to do something not alternative, but that good care can happen in many settings. And I think so, it's just starting to be that they realize, oh, I have an option. Oh, yeah. Because I have to have a lot of students that some are like, when I say I was a doula, they're like, oh, so you were catching the bait. Like they're, they don't actually even, they're not even educated on there's midwives, there are doulas, there are home births, there are birth centers. Many are just kind of going along. I'm pregnant. I go to a doctor. I do it in the hospital. And so I think we're finally starting to broaden a little bit more that this is even a viable option. I think that the unity of midwives is going to help that. I think a big, and people say to me, oh, you're a midwife, so that means you're a doula? Mm -hmm. And then I have to explain to them what a midwife does. Oh, you're a midwife? Like when they hear that I can do a pap smear or that I can do a blood draw or, you know, that I, it's sometimes that I can prescribe. Together. I have clients yeah. that say I need medication, like in my care, that say I need medication do I need to go to my doctor? And I'm like, no, I, I can take care of right, you. So then I'll just you know, say, so I have my midwife and my doctor. Yeah, exactly. So, so I think that that is partially a, a perfect illustration of what I experience as the confusion that people experience about what a midwife does. It just makes me laugh because I remember meeting somebody and they're like, I'm like, oh, a yoga teacher. Like, oh, my friend's a Pilates teacher. Is that the same thing? I'm like, no, no, it's not, not the same. same thing. But, you know, it's the kind of thing like... But they're both teachers. But they're both teachers yes. of some sort of fitness. <laughs> and so I think that happens with the midwife and doula. They're it both does. involved in birth, and yet they're not, you know, obstetricians. So they're kind of grouped together. That's right. And so in case anybody who is listening doesn't know, a doula is a layperson who has experience sitting with women in labor, with, with couples in labor, or a woman and her support person, whoever it is, right, um, in labor, and providing support through that person's labor and postpartum support and that kind of thing. They're not medical people, although they may be medical people. They don't work in that capacity mm -hmm. when they're working as a doula. A midwife can do everything that a doctor does except for surgery, basically. We can prescribe, we can deliver a baby, we can suture, we can um, we can take care of many, many complications um, in the hospital and out of the hospital. Um, in fact, I should say most midwives do practice in the hospital, so if you think that midwives only do home birth, that's not the case either. We do, most of us do, in hospital birth. I did all my training in the hospital, great place. Yeah, oh, okay, I think we're going to end on that note, and I wanted to just thank you. My really pleasure. Thank you for sharing your wisdom and your knowledge and your story. And I think what you had to say will empower and educate a lot of women. I think that's really the path. It's just open, educate, so that the women can make their own decisions. So for that, sure. Because there's no right way. You know, you never should walk in thinking this is the one path. And I think you so eloquently put everything out there for people to listen to and digest. And it was fun to see you again, Tanya. Good to see you too, Deb. <laughs> I feel like I only see you now on Facebook. <laughs> I, you know, that's where I see most people in the middle of the night when I'm 
waiting for baby to come out. <laughs> so can you tell people if they want to learn more about your services, how they can find you? Sure. If you want to learn more about my midwifery services, I work with my partner, Marcy Tardio, and the name of our practice is Marcy Tardio Home Birth. It's Marcy with a Y, T-A-R-D-I-O, Home Birth. Dot com and if you're interested in my lactation services or childbirth education classes you can find that at Manhattan birth which is manhattanbirth.com and then if you do that you get to hang out with Tanya That's a great person <laughs> <laughs> I kept there for side hang out with Tanya so thank you again it was really such a pleasure and thank you listeners for listening and please take a moment to go to Stitcher or iTunes and rate this as well as review it tell your friends and if you're not already on our email list go to prenatalyogacenter.com to sign up and if you do that then you get a free video about how to use your abdominals during pregnancy your transverse abdominals to help you push your baby out thanks again and have a great day take care This has been an episode of Yoga Birth Babies, produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. You can catch us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Periscope. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Thanks for listening.